Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for coming to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium for today's event. My name is Dan Griswold. I'm the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. Our mission at the Trade Center is to educate the public and policymakers on the benefits of free trade and the costs of protectionism. And that has never, never been a, an easy task over the decades and, uh, and centuries, but it seems particularly uh, an uphill climb uh, these days. At this moment in time, uh, the future of free trade appears to be cloudy at best. The Doha Round negotiations in the World Trade Organization came to an all-too-familiar uh, stalemate this summer. Here in the United States, a faltering economy has only fed uh, public skepticism about the benefits of free trade agreements. A presidential Trade Promotion Authority has expired. Uh, a Democratic Congress has made it clear that it's in no hurry to approve pending agreements with Colombia and Panama and South Korea. In fact, Congress went the opposite direction in May by approving a massive uh, farm bill uh, that shovels uh, subsidies and trade protection uh, to certain uh, farm sectors. Meanwhile, uh, even pro-trade economists like Jagdish Bhagwati are warning darkly that the world's about to descend into a, a spaghetti bowl of proliferating regional and bilateral trade agreements. And then, of course, the November elections may strengthen the hand of those in Washington who want to get tough with Mexico and Canada uh, and China and other major U.S. trading partners. Well, for those of us who support free trade and a more open, liberalized global economy, the future may actually be brighter uh, than I just uh, painted there. And we offer two antidotes today at the Cato Institute. One is a, uh, a study that we just re released today uh, by Robert Kroll of California State University in Northridge, Northridge called Trade, Protectionism, and the U.S. Econ Economy Examining the Evidence. And this is a very handy survey. Economists really do believe that free trade is best, despite uh, what you might hear of some dissenting voices. Uh, they remain committed to free trade as the best policy, and I urge you to take a look at this. Uh, the other antidote is a wonderful uh, book that we're featuring today by Dr. Razin Sally. Uh, he has written an insightful and comprehensive book about the future of the global trading system, the frontiers, new frontiers in free trade, globalization's future, and Asia's rising role. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. This Cato book provides a realistic roadmap to the future, the next phase of globalization, the future of globalization. It contains plenty of illuminating details but I think one of the real strengths of the book is that these details are rooted in a classical liberal framework uh, of the global economy, which still has great power to explain uh, what is going on. In fact, in the tradition of David Hume, Adam Smith, and F.A. Hayek, uh, this short book tackles some very big questions. For example, as the author himself explains, what is the relevance of free trade or freer trade today? What is its role in modern globalization? What are the existing and emerging protectionist threats out there today, ideological and material, to open markets? Why is it important to counter them? 
And how can a freer trade agenda be put into practice today and in the years ahead? Well, Razin Sally is superbly qualified to answer these questions. He's co-director of the European Center for International Political Economy, ESIPE, uh, an international economic policy think tank uh, headquartered in Brussels. He is presently on leave of absence from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where he has taught since 1993, where he received his Ph.D. Uh, from the LSE in 1992. And I have to say, at, at this point, uh, moderate, moderating today's event is a great privilege for me because, uh, oh, about a dozen years ago, I was in the middle of my graduate studies at the London School of Economics, and I, I saw this flyer about the uh, inaugural meeting of the F.A. Hayek Society, and they had a, uh, a guest lecturer from the International Relations Department named Razin Sally, and I went along uh, to listen, and I was pr profoundly impressed. In fact, while I was there, and he uh, became my uh, academic advisor in my master's program, and while I was there, I heard a, a series of lectures that Dr. Sally gave on uh, the intellectual, great intellectual figures in the classical liberal tradition, and I'll just plug one of his other books, which is just outstanding, Classical Liberalism and the International Economic Order by Rutledge. Uh, that's uh, a compilation of those lectures and a, a wonderful source book. Um, and Dr. Sally is truly a man of the world. He has traveled widely in Asia and is affiliated with think tanks in South Africa, Paris, Singapore, Hong Kong, and London. Uh, and I think the affiliation he's most uh, pleased with is that he is a member of the advisory board for the Center for Trade Policy Studies uh, here at the Cato Institute. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Razin Sally. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for those uh, generous words, uh, Dan. Um, a good, uh, good afternoon, just about, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming this afternoon. Uh, let me begin with a, a heartfelt uh, thanks to uh, Dan in particular uh, for uh, uh, first going ahead with the, uh, the publication of the book, with uh, with Cato, and I must say I'm uh, I'm exceedingly pleased uh, to uh, to publish uh, this uh, little book with uh, with the Cato Institute. Uh, I have an association with uh, the Trade Policy Center since its uh, foundation uh, in when was it 97 1998 um, and uh, have uh, been very proud of that uh, that association uh, down the years. Uh, and have kept a close watch at uh, what uh, Brink Lindsay and Dan Griswold and their colleagues have been doing on the trade front uh, here. So it does give me particular pleasure uh, to uh, be able to uh, present and talk about uh, uh, this book uh, right, uh, right, right, right here. Um, let me let me begin. Uh, by really setting out uh, what I call in the book its mental atmosphere, uh, a term that was a favorite of George Orwell's. Uh, I say in the introduction that it's a little book about a large subject. Uh, the themes are very large and complicated indeed, free trade versus protection, uh, the WTO, uh, so-called free trade agreements, uh, what's happening on the trade front in China and India and points in between. Um, 
but I've tried to keep it short. Uh, I have a little quote from Henry David Thoreau right at the head of the, uh, the introduction, uh, and I think he says that uh, it might take, uh, not that the story need be long, but it will take a long time to make it short, and I have labored too long uh, to make it as short and concise as possible. Uh, I have also tried to write it in normal, uh, simple English uh, putting myself in the shoes, hopefully, of a good journalist as opposed to a jargon-ridden academic. Uh, in other words, the book is intended for a, uh, a broad audience uh, of uh, interested uh, readers, uh, not, not, not just uh, trade, uh, trade experts. That's the broad mental atmosphere. Uh, Montaigne, the French philosopher, liked to say that he wanted a man to charge ahead with his conclusions. So I will start with my conclusions and work backwards. I have um, four main conclusions by way of propositions. Um, let me set them out first and then get into the themes of the book. The first proposition is that uh, trade policy today is uh, outdated in 20th century mindsets, regulations, and institutions, and largely disconnected from uh, business and consumer reality today. Uh, it has unfortunately become uh, the plaything of officials, negotiators, uh, um, and the surrounding circus of uh, academic experts like myself, NGOs, and Carlos, I hope you won't take this the wrong way, uh, the, the donors. Uh, but there are two main actors missing from the table, that is to say producers and consumers. Two main symptoms of this disconnect. Uh, the first is the WTO itself with its Doha round, which has gone around in ever-decreasing circles discussing uh, what seems to normal people as obscure subjects to do with special and differential treatment, aid for trade, sensitive and special product products in agriculture, and mind-numbingly complicated coefficients to reduce tariffs in agriculture and industrial goods, uh, which even some of the experts don't understand. Um, the second symptom is uh, so-called free trade agreements, which are, of course, uh, preferential trade agreements, given that they are inherently discriminatory. Now, in essence, the discriminatory provisions in these agreements run against the grain of 21st century globalization. The vanguard of 21st century globalization are companies with complex supply chains around the world. Uh, the heart of that uh, is often to be found in East Asia. And what these companies need above all else are simple regulations to allow a smooth flow of their parts and components and the various links in their chains. That is precisely what free trade agreements, so-called, work against with many of their provisions. So that's my first proposition. My second proposition is that trade policy has become too top-down, driven too much by negotiations, multilateral, bilateral, and regional, and not sufficiently bottom-up. That's something I'll elaborate on uh, in due course. My third proposition is that... Uh, uh, there has been reform complacency and reform fatigue 
trade policy reforms have basically stalled in most regions of the world. Now, this might not have seemed to have been a big problem during, shall we say, the Goldilocks global economy in the last five or six years, but these benign global economic conditions have come to an end. They expose cracks. These cracks require serious reforms to contain mounting protectionist threats that are emerging, uh, as well as to uh, undertake uh, uh, reforms that will allow economies to adapt uh, and come out of more inclement conditions. But that seems not to be happening at the moment. Fourth proposition really is in the form of a question. Well, what needs to be done? My answer, to cut a long story short, is that the World Trade Organization post-Doha needs a radical departure from standard operating procedures. Secondly, there has to be much more caution with uh, preferential trade agreements, PTAs, and a cleaning up exercise. And thirdly, that trade reforms of the future need to be more bottom-up, that is to say linked to bread-and-butter domestic economic issues and be less of a plaything uh, of international institutions. And that is primarily an exercise of unilateral measures with a kind of copycatting emulation around the world, much more than of trade negotiations per se not that these are mutually exclusive. And by extension, these reforms should be fixed in an attitude of uh, domestic economic liberalism, uh, reasonably limited government with as large a sway as possible for market forces. Now, that is, of course, easier said than done. Uh, it is nice dinner table conversation. Uh, the practical exercise is to make it feasible uh, and relevant in the messy world of politics and policy. Those are my four main conclusions. Let me now develop uh, some of the, uh, the themes uh, in, in the book. The second chapter is uh, the broad canvas, arguments for free trade and arguments against, which I trace back to classical antiquity and move forward to the present day. Uh, I find this kind of exercise in a potted intellectual history useful because one thing it teaches us is that most of the current debates on free trade versus protection are not novel. Uh, they have their antecedents, and they are more or less reformulations of what we have seen in the past. Just to pick out a couple of elements from this, this chapter. First, on mercantilism then and now. Now, we live in an age of uh, more pronounced Washington consensus skepticism than was the case, say, a decade ago. Uh, that subsumes many uh, arguments skeptical about free trade and trade liberalization. These arguments, uh, for the most part, are mercantilist at their core and are rather similar to old-style mercantilism pre-Adam Smith when it comes to a fixation with trade deficits, when it comes to a fixation with promoting uh, infant or strategic manufacturing industries, as they are dubbed, when it comes to a belief in a zero-sum international game, when it comes to uh, 
thwarting liberalization in the name of self-sufficiency um, or vulnerable sectors of the economy. In other words, these arguments are really not new. Uh, they are, for the most part, uh, old wine in often very flashy new designer bottles. On the free trade side of the ledger, uh, my argument is that the basic case for free trade, also in its most rounded form, uh, has not been surpassed since Adam Smith laid it out in The Wealth of Nations, in Book 4 in particular. And I characterize that as the free trade trinity, one of freedom, because the engine of international commerce is individual economic freedom, uh, that, by means of an invisible hand, to put it simply, or uh, hopefully not too simplistically, uh, leads to prosperity, uh, and that, while it doesn't guarantee it, uh, it conduces to uh, international peace, the global pacts, peaceful international relations. So that, to me, is the broad case for free trade, the trinity of freedom, prosperity, and peace. Now, in the 19th century, trade policy uh, was had that as the broad canvas, but when it came to its dynamics, as it were, it was about unilateral liberalization, particularly led by the British, uh, in the context of what was a Victorian social contract of limited government, free markets at home and abroad, and, of course, stable exchanges and the protection of private property. Post-1945, we saw a reformulation of that argument. Bigger government came to be accepted. Trade liberalization was to be driven by international institutions, notably uh, the GATT, through reciprocal bargaining. Uh, and free trade, or freer trade, was supposed to be compatible with both big government at home and reciprocity through international institutions abroad. My basic case is that uh, the argument for free trade needs to return to basics with more of an emphasis on unilateral liberalization uh, in the context of that classical liberal framework of limited government and free markets, not to deny completely the raison d'etre of reciprocity and international institutions, notably the WTO, but perhaps with a lesser space for them than in the decades that followed 1945. So much for the theory, the abstractions. Let me now get into some of the, the policy themes and detail. My third chapter is on the political economy of trade policy reforms, uh, less so in the developed world, more so in the, developed wor in the developing world, with uh, an accent on, on Asia. And I make the following uh, basic points. Firstly, uh, there is now a changed climate and a more difficult, more inclement climate for trade policy reform in the direction of liberalization compared with the heyday of the Washington Consensus in the 1980s and the 1990s. Uh, so we have seen not a reversal, uh, but a slowdown of further reforms in the last decade or so, 
uh, in practically every region of the world economy, in Europe, in the United States, uh, and in developing country regions. The one exception, China, of the major emerging markets, uh, has also been slowing down with its reforms in the last couple of years or so, and that includes trade and investment liberalization. Now, this is not just about material events. It is also about the climate of ideas. No doubt about it, uh, market skeptical ideas, ideas that are skeptical about further liberalization, have become more popular in the last decade. Perhaps their two most visible academic or intellectual exponents are Joe Stiglitz and Danny Roderick in the United States. Uh, they make a lot of specific arguments, uh, for example, that the North should liberalize but not the South, uh, that globalization has not delivered sufficient benefits through opening of markets, uh, that arguments for infant industry protection, some of them are actually worth pursuing. Now, I happen to think that all these three arguments are basically wrong. Um, we can go into that in discussion, if you like. Uh, but uh, uh, I suppose those of us on the free trade side of the fence have to realize that uh, the battle is uphill uh, because, once again, these arguments uh, uh, are more current and have more influence. What about trade policy on the ground. Yes, there has been a lot of liberalization around the world. Uh, that includes a trade policy revolution in the developing world in the 1980s and the 1990s, I suppose culminating with the accession of China to the WTO. But that still leaves a lot of unfinished business. There remain pockets of protection in the West, moderate for the most part, but uh, with some peaks here or there, which happen to be directed mainly at exports from developing countries. But if we look around at the developing world, despite the great liberalization of the 80s and 90s, we still see, as I said, a lot of unfinished business. That includes relatively high tariffs. Uh, that includes some non-tariff measures at the border that are distortive, particularly in agriculture. That includes uh, still pretty high restrictions on foreign direct investment, particularly in big-ticket services sectors like financial services, telecoms, and the utilities. But what I really want to zero in on are, shall we say, some business climate issues, as the World Bank calls it, and as it documents and ranks these issues in its ease of doing business report and in some associated publications. Now, when it comes to some issues, and I have some tables in the book that illustrate this point, like setting up a business, uh, the red tape it takes to set up and conduct a business, bankruptcy procedures, uh, customs and trade facilitation issues at the border in terms of getting containers in and out. Now, these are all inherently issues of domestic regulation. But the point I want to make is that they affect not just internal trade and internal investment, but also 
external trade and external investment. In other words, they are very much trade-related. They are the real bottlenecks, particularly when it comes to labor market issues and the public sector, where reform nuts are hardest to crack. Here we've seen really not that much significant reform around the world, which is reflected in still pretty low scores for developing countries for the most part. And the point I want to make here is that this is really a second-generation set of issues for trade reforms in the present and the future. Uh, different in many ways from the first generation of reforms at the border with tariffs and quotas and some of the other headline restrictions. A couple of observations about these second generation reforms, really to give a sense of the difficulties involved. They are that much more difficult and complex than the first generation reforms. They're administratively more difficult. They're technically more difficult. They cost money and time to implement. And above all, they are politically that much more sensitive because they go to the heart of the domestic economy and domestic regulation. My second observation is that these sets of issues are really difficult to handle through trade negotiations top-down, even in bilateral FTAs, uh, and certainly in the WTO. They are really much more a case of unilateral reforms, and there has to be a better link. This is, I think, my essential point between these bread-and-butter trade-related reforms and a domestic economic reform agenda. Now, that is my final observation here. As much about simplicity and transparency as it is about liberalization. And the problem, to get back to my first proposition, is that trade policy conducted in international negotiations has been going precisely against this grain because the Doha round so far has been mostly about adding extra layers of complexity, and so have FTAs. Let me now move on to the World Trade Organization. Um, as a, a prompt in lectures to keep students awake, I sometimes say that the WTO stands for the World Tourism Organization, of course, which uh, many of us are familiar with. Um, but it also stands for the World Toilet Organization. Uh, there is one. Uh, which had its first major convention at Suntec City in Singapore, where the WTO had a ministerial conference, its first, in 1996. Here we are, of course, talking of the World Trade Organization. Um, I have two quotes at the head of my uh, WTO chapter, one long one from the great Canadian economist uh, Jacob Weiner, uh, I'm not sure how many Americans realize that Jacob Viner was actually Canadian, um, like Peter Jennings and Michael Fox, but there we are. Viner said that the great political virtue of multilateralism, far exceeding in importance its economic virtues, is that it makes it economically possible for most countries, even if small, poor, and weak, to live in freedom and with chances of prosperity without having to come to terms with some great power. And then I have a quote by way of contrast from the Sutherland Report, which the last Director General of the WTO commissioned a few years ago. And I quote, 
In recent years, the impression has often been given of a vehicle with a proliferation of backseat drivers, each seeking a different destination with no map and no intention of asking the way. Now, that contrast of sound bites, as it were, is intended to illustrate the highs and the lows of the WTO. The highs were the foundation of a system with multilateral principles, which had considerable success in taking down tariff and other border barriers in industrial goods in the developed countries, culminating in the Uruguay Round Agreements of 1994. The lows subsequently I will go into. A caveat, the WTO has not been an unmitigated disaster. It has had its successes. The dispute settlement mechanism has worked pretty well, given the pressures that have uh, been mounted on it. Uh, and the WTO has had headline successful accessions, notably of China, but one shouldn't forget Vietnam as well, perhaps the most successful of WTO accessions to date. I am pleased to say that Russia is not in the WTO, and recent events uh, probably increase the chances of it not joining the WTO for some time to come. I consider that good uh, negative news, as it were. Um, what about the lows of the WTO? The lows are very much about what is supposed to be its core negotiations to further liberalize trade and strengthen the rules. These have been uh, an almost unmitigated disaster since the late 1990s for the following reasons. I instance five. Firstly, the agenda is wider and it's deeper in terms of going into domestic regulation, that much more sensitive with many more objectives, many of them contradictory, on the table. Secondly, the membership has inflated to 153 at the last count, which of course means many differences of interest more difficult to reconcile. Thirdly, the WTO increasingly resembles UNCTAD up the road and other organizations in the UN system, not least with the greater role of foreign ministries who bring with them the chaotic uh, and verbose ways of the United Nations. So the WTO has become UNized, very sad to say. Fourthly, the reciprocity model, bargaining over tariffs and quotas and then subsidies uh, at or close to the border, did work with hindsight, at least among the developed countries. It does not work now, clearly, with a much larger set of countries and going deep into domestic regulations. It is difficult, really, to trade off a food safety standards measure with a services regulation measure with something to do with intellectual property rights, as the WTO has shown. And very finally, ascending to geopolitics, as it were, the end of the Cold War has uh, certainly weakened, possibly dissolved, the glue that held much of the old gap together in terms of alliance politics. Now, those five factors in the transition from the GATT to the WTO have played into the Doha round. Not going into the details here, that's not particularly important. The round collapsed at the last mini-ministerial at the end of July. 
my sense, my feeling is that the round itself should be scrapped. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear Carlos's views on, on, this, on this matter. Um, I think there is a certain amount of very predictable Geneva cretinism at work now as before. Um, Ostrich-like trade negotiators, uh, some of them very likable and sensible people I know on other issues, uh, continue to go around trying to put Humpty back together and sometimes give you odds, maybe a 52.3% chance of finishing it by the end of the year. Uh, That's what I mean by cretinism. To be less flippant for a moment, why is there an argument to scrap the round and start again? What is on the table is largely theoretical and a very low common denominator. And when it comes to practical application, for example, businesses interested in foreign, application, in foreign expansion, uh, irrelevant or close to irrelevant. That is the first argument for scrapping what's already there. Secondly, even if a deal is done, the odds are still against it being ratified, particularly here in the United States, I would guess. Thirdly, carrying on with the round is probably a distraction from thinking afresh about what to do with the WTO post-Doha. And to me, that's the most important exercise. So let me set out some observations on what I think should happen with the WTO post-Doha. If it is to be relevant to the world outside and to be reconnected to business and consumer realities, four points. Firstly, uh, the WTO should be much more modest in terms of aiming for future liberalization. That is probably going to be elusive for the foreseeable future. Uh, There is what is called a market access agenda in terms of bringing the bound tariffs and other disciplines closer to what countries actually do at home. But that's not net liberalization. Uh, There are some agreements that could do with updating, with cleaning up, such as the information technology agreement. Um, And there are some others I I could instance. There are elements of the Doha agenda that could probably be picked up and cleaned up to deliver a more practical result for... Uh, businesses uh, and consumers outside Geneva. But that, I think, is a relatively modest agenda. What is much more important is to focus much more on the rules because the stakes, the mutual stakes, on the part of the developed countries and an increasing number of developing countries, and that includes China, India, Brazil, South Africa, and a range of so-called middle powers, these are actually much more important than future liberalization through the WTO. In other words, safeguarding and updating vital multilateral rules for international commerce, the things that grease the wheels of commerce and that tend to be neglected during trade negotiating rounds. There is, I think, a very big agenda there, but it requires a different form of application to negotiations by way of rounds, which I think should be consigned to a better yesterday. In other words, no more rounds in the foreseeable future. Concentrate more on issue by issue, perhaps sector by sector negotiations. How is that to be done? Here we get to process. 
I don't want to be uh, cretinous about it because there are um, people around who uh, can talk about nothing but process, <laughs> and they are particularly insufferable inside that little village called Geneva. Uh, but just a basic point here. The WTO needs to get real with realities outside Geneva. Those realities are that about 30 countries, if you count the European Union as one, account for about 90% of international trade and investment. If you take intra-EU trade out of it, 10 countries account for about 70% of trade. So the countries that matter, those that are globalized or globalizing, the OECD plus about 20 developing countries, need to find decision-making formats in which they can pursue modest liberalization and certainly strengthen the rules. Now, that is what is called in Europe variable geometry. Within the outer core, there is an inner core of about five or six, the USA, the EU, uh, India, Brazil, uh, China, crucially, and perhaps Japan. They need to cooperate more closely. What about the rest of the membership? That's about 100. Two-thirds of the membership who actually account for a very small proportion of international trade and investment. Well, I, I think in a more differentiated WTO, uh, the understanding should be that these countries if they don't want to subscribe to strong agreements, should, be, should have an opt-out, um, and uh, on the understanding that they don't block it for everybody else. That's been part of the problem with this round because nearly all these countries have been defensive to arch-defensive uh, without bringing things to the table themselves. Final observation here, something called the single undertaking in other words, packaging agreements so that everybody has to agree to all the major elements uh, should probably be unpicked um, with more opt-ins and opt-outs, with different clubs of the capable and willing signing on to certain agreements. Uh, a model for that can be something like the Information Technology Agreement or the GATS agreements on telecoms, and financial services, uh, perhaps. But I think, um, to put it more strongly, uh, WTO members should consider going back to the method of the Tokyo round. That is to say, to have club-like agreements uh, among those who form a critical mass of trade and investment, but with so-called conditional MFN applying. In other words, uh, giving the advantages... Uh, only to those who take on the obligations, but not to others. Uh, theologians in Geneva object to this because, of course, it is, to some extent, discriminatory. But as a second best, and to break the logjam, this may be one way forward. There is also something called special and differential treatment, to uh, retreat into the jargon momentarily, which I think also needs to be differentiated because developing countries themselves are increasingly differentiated. To put this all together, let me characterize it in the following way. The wrong picture for the WTO is to think of it as something that's ever more inclusive and participatory, 
and as an instrument of ambitious global governance. The right picture, in my view, is to think of it as an intergovernmental mechanism or club uh, to pursue relatively modest goals uh, with relatively modest instruments. There is, I think, one major implication here for the United States and for the next administration in particular. There is still no substitute for American leadership in the WTO. It is not going to be substituted for by the European Union, Japan, or the leading developing country powers. In other words, it requires a U.S. initiative to set the WTO on its legs again, uh, and it requires an effective U.S. management in a genuinely shared effort of plurilateral concerts or coalitions of the willing, as it were, and I am not thinking of parallels with Iraq here. I'm thinking of genuine two-way or multi-way coalitions of the willing. So it probably does require initiative from the next administration. I realize that there are daunting domestic obstacles, particularly in Congress, uh, to go in that direction, but without that, the WTO is probably going to remain stuck. Um, there are several initiatives one can think of, but perhaps this, again, we can pick up in discussion. Let me now move on to preferential trade agreements, PTAs. Uh, the quote I have at the head of my PTA chapter is, uh, I think, I hope I'm not wrong, borrowed from Texas, all hat and no cattle. I can think of stronger equivalents from my part of the world, uh, but uh, I will leave them aside uh, in, in this civilized gathering. There are about 400 PTAs notified, 200-plus on the books. Um, they've been proliferating in East Asia, which was previously absent from uh, this trend. What's the balance here? Well, the arguments coming from governments around the world is that these have been building blocks to multilateral and other forms of liberalization. I think that's wrong, uh, echoing very much what Professor Bhagwati has to say about it in his recent book on termites in the trading system. I would characterize PTAs as, for the most part, trade light uh, and with the potential to do some damage. Why? Firstly, uh, aside from a handful, we might be talking of about three of more serious PTAs. That's to say the European Union, NAFTA, and the agreement between Australia and New Zealand. Nearly all the rest are driven largely by foreign policy concerns with little commercial or economic sense, a basic cost-benefit analysis, as it were. They are trade light. They exempt large areas from disciplines, particularly in agriculture, Above all, they don't really advance on WTO disciplines when it comes to tackling non-tariff regulatory barriers in services, in investment, in government procurement, and so on. And that's where the real gains lie. Uh, the U.S. does say that it has stronger FTAs. Uh, it does, compared with other players. Uh, but these tend to be one-way bargains. They tend to be with tiddlers. They're difficult, almost impossible to negotiate with more serious players. There are one or two exceptions, but there we are. Thirdly, 
even strong FTAs, in addition to all the weak trade light ones, create so-called spaghetti bowl and noodle bowl complications in terms of their discriminatory provisions on rules of origin, services, investment, and so on. And that, as I argued at the outset, goes against the grain of 21st century globalization, which should require the opposite. Fourthly, they have been a serious distraction from the WTO and arguably from unilateral liberalization as well. Fifthly, very much in the spirit of Cordell Hull here, we are talking about discrimination that is about arbitrary government intervention, that is disruptive in markets, and that also disturbs the equilibrium of international relations. It creates friction among countries. So, I think the upshot here is that these agreements are often not worth the paper they're written on. Sometimes they do store up complications. They need to be contained, and the mess, particularly in terms of many of the discriminatory provisions involved on rules of origin and other measures, need to be cleaned up somehow or other. And this also requires the right signals from the United States, uh, which have probably not been forthcoming with a rather indiscriminate approach to FTAs uh, for foreign policy reasons, perhaps more than anything else, in recent years. My next major theme, and I'm working towards a conclusion, I hasten to add, is on unilateral liberalization, particularly in Asia. Now, what gets forgotten with the focus and the fixation on trade negotiations is liberalization outside trade negotiations, that is to say unilateral liberalization. Uh, and one should remember that most of it in the developing world, roughly since the early 1980s, has taken place unilaterally. And the really strong liberalizers have not relied on aid packages to do it. The weaker ones may have. Uh, Carlos's colleagues at the World Bank have a, a nice figure that shows that about two-thirds of the tariff liberalization done in the developing world since the early 1980s has been done unilaterally. Less than a third through the GATT stroke WTO, and only about 10%, if I'm not mistaken, Carlos, through bilateral and regional trade agreements. Nowhere has unilateral liberalization been stronger than in East Asia. Northeast Asia, then Southeast Asia, then China, particularly from the 1990s, and reverberating back to Southeast Asia and across to India. China has been the leading signal setter of such liberalization since the early 1990s. This is the way that East Asian countries have opened markets, simultaneous liberalization of trade and FDI to multinationals who have built up supply chains linked to final markets in Europe, North America, and elsewhere. Now, this kind of liberalization has slowed down uh, to a large extent because China has slowed down. My point here is that if we are to see future trade reforms, particularly of the regulatory variety, much more tricky politically and otherwise, it is going to come through this route and not through trade negotiations which have diminishing returns. So I think the point here, the challenge, is to try and stimulate further unilateral liberalization, particularly in Asia and particularly in China. Uh, 
Now, that requires some sort of appropriate external environment. Again, back to implications for the United States. The United States has never been a unilateral liberalizer, but if it avoids certain mistakes and pursues certain foreign economic policies in terms of enlightened self-interest, it can provide the enabling environment for China and others to go forward with further reforms. What that means in translation is the United States containing protectionist forces at home, particularly vis-a-vis China, and deepening the sort of constructive engagement that Secretary Paulson has been trying to engender, particularly in the strategic economic dialogue. That will help providing the enabling environment for the Beijing leadership to go further with its own reforms, I would, I would submit. Almost finally, some emerging protectionist threats. I'll give you a shopping list here, which we can discuss. Integrating China and India into the global economy is clearly engendering a structural backlash, given the... Uh, transformation that's involved, and we're still in the early stages of that. That backlash is not just here in the United States and in Europe. It's in other developing countries as well. That has played into the Doha round, the fear of China factor. Secondly, we are now seeing a creeping increase in investment nationalism, foreign direct investment restrictions, often in energy sectors, but sometimes stretching beyond energy sectors. The French, for example, define yogurt as a strategic industry to protect. It's what uh, Patrick Messelin calls France's strategic yogurt policy. The migration agenda, or more precisely, the freedom for people of workers to cross borders in search of work, is something definitely worth pursuing as part of a 21st century free trade agenda. But to be realistic about it, in a gradual and incremental way, given that this is much more sensitive than liberalizing trade or liberalizing capital flows. Standards protectionism of developed countries aimed at developing countries, what Jagjish Bhagwati calls regulatory intrusionism, is on the rampage predictably, and I would submit that its Trojan horse is the climate change agenda. We have seen already in Europe uh, threats to impose carbon tariffs and others who don't play ball on uh, a European or a Western agenda to combat global warming. Uh, We are probably about to see a torrent of legislation coming out of Congress on the same issue Uh, which most likely uh, the president, whoever he is going to be, is going to veto. Uh, So this is something that uh, I think is going to assume uh, greater and more alarming proportions very soon. There's the challenge of dealing with uh, failed or failing states, also on the trade agenda. There are security threats that often are a cloak for protectionism or certainly very inefficient ways of dealing with international trade. The United States has been the main offender here uh, post-9-11 with all sorts of ill-advised border security measures. 
There are other issues such as combating fuel and uh, food inflation and financial volatility, which provide grist to the mill of protectionists. To get back to the big picture, a few final observations. Nation states are still vital uh, to globalization. That includes the trade agenda. What nation states require as a backup is a serviceable and feasible multilateralism rather than, as I put it in the book, flatulent and fluffy global governance. Trade policy, to repeat, needs to be hauled into the 21st century. We don't need to be too pessimistic because if we look at the picture now compared with, say, the summer of 1914, it's not all that bad. Uh, what we do need is uh, what Martin Wolf calls a liberal realism. In other words, liberal principles and a liberal compass, but something that doesn't deny political realities and tries to harness them in the right direction. And very finally, since we are here, what the world trading system does need, and for which there's no substitute, is the leadership of the United States. But it's complicated because it's not about doing deals just with the European Union. Uh, it's not about uh, persuading China and others uh, of the virtues of an American agenda. It is about genuine, effective managements of uh, the right sort of coalitions of the willing. And there I will conclude. Thank you, Dan. Our commentator today is also somebody who's thought <clears throat> deeply in a long time about the global economy. Carlos Primo Braga is a Brazilian national who is currently director of the Poverty Reduction and Economic Management Network at the World Bank. Uh, among his areas of expertise at the bank are international trade, intellectual property rights, trade and services, multilateral trade negotiations, and the WTO. He's was previously based in Geneva as the bank's senior advisor on international trade. Uh, Dr. Braga received a degree in mechanical engineering from the Instituto Tecnologico de Aeronautica in Brazil, a master's in economics from the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and he also holds a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, I can pronounce that. Uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Carlos Braga. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks to Cato for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to debate Razin, who is an old friend. The reality is that there are two situations that a discussant hates. One is when he or she completely agrees with the paper or book that he is discussing. And the other is he completely disagrees with the book. Razin will be glad to say that I'm in the hot seat because I basically agree with most of the things, but since there is a lunch and I know that there is no free lunch in this city, <laughs> I, I'm going to talk a little bit, but I'm going to be brief. I'm going to be brief. Uh, first, I, I, I think this book uh, does something that it's a little bit unusual and uh, in this sense is most welcome, which is to go back in... Uh, comprehensive, but uh, again, in a brief manner, focused manner on the history of the debate about free trade, the theoretical argument. And I think it's 
puts in a very effective way the proposition that the argument for free trade should be properly understood in the context of the broader argument for laissez-faire, and that to a certain extent in the post-World War II period, we saw a divergence of this, let's say, connection between how governments, for instance, the United States, but many governments, particularly in the industrialized world, pursue trade liberalization. I'm not going to say free trade, but trade liberalization in the international sphere, but at the same time in the domestic sphere, supported government intervention. So this disconnect, according to Razin, is to a certain extent part and parcel of the malaise that we have now to advance this agenda. And in a nutshell, I'm simplifying, but we can debate this, what uh, he is suggesting is go back to the basics, go back to the 19th centuries, the good old times, and everything is going to be fixed. Well, I have to say that's one of the few parts that I disagree. But... uh, There are some interesting propositions in this discussion. The historical chapter I strongly recommend, although I was very uh, unhappy that you didn't uh, uh, explore a little bit more David Ricardo and the concept of comparative advantage, because for me, for any economist, it's always interesting to go back to Samuelson and in one of his best papers about the history of ideas, he tells a story about when he was in Princeton, and he had a debate with Stanislaw Ullen, a mathematician at Princeton, that basically asked Samuelson, could you give me just one proposition in social sciences that it's both true and non-trivial? And he had a hard time, finally, Eureka. It's exactly the theory of comparative advantages. And he came back to Stanislaw and said, well, the fact that it's true, I don't need to explain to you, you being a mathematician. The fact that it's non-trivial, it's enough to see that how much is it misunderstood. And that it's part of the complexity of conveying trade policies and trying particularly to influence policymakers. I see Jean-Pierre Chafour, who used to sit side by side with me in Geneva when he was the IMF representative there. Now he saw the light and joined the bank. But uh, in any case, and uh, we had these discussions again and again with developing country ambassadors in terms of the benefits of liberalization. And very simple things like comparative advantage often are misunderstood, particularly if you come from ministries of foreign affairs. Now, uh, the fact of the matter, and Razin puts this very uh, elegantly in, in, in the book, is that to a certain extent we could even argue that in the 1980s up to the early 1990s with the breakdown of the Soviet Union, with the end of the Cold War, I'm not going to push in the end of uh, history, but that the battle had been pretty much won and that the Washington Consensus, the idea of uh, reform through liberalization, privatization, and uh, and, uh, 
and uh, liber and stabilize first of all, of course, uh, all of these were uh, part and parcel of the consensus in terms of economies. Of course, it's to push the argument a little bit. There were always dissenters since the debate between liberalism and protectionism is as old as uh, Razin's book uh, points out. But I always remember, and this is Baguati told uh, in one of his books, the story about the debate between Gustav Reines and John Rab Robinson. And uh, this debate was in a conference, and both were disagreeing about everything in economics. Typical uh, metaphor for economists. Up to a point that somebody from the audience asked, but could you at least agree if there is one country that you would say this country has pursued successful development policies in a sustainable manner? And both of them answered Korea. And the audience was relieved till they realized that John Robinson was talking about North Korea and, uh, and Gustav Reins about South Korea. I don't think that we have this debate anymore. Okay, so in terms of the broader proposition of what makes you successful, and Razin's book is very uh, good in putting together, let's say, how in the 1980s and 1990s there were significant steps in the right direction, be it along the lines of the Washington Consensus, be it in terms of the broader canvas of policies that we now can recommend in an institution like the bank. If you have not seen, I would recommend the recent report of the Growth Commission uh, that has Mike Spence as the chair, uh, which the bank was part of, which takes a much more, let's say, not, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this here, but it's not a, an ideological view of how markets operate. But uh, it took a, some analysis of what took for countries to be able, over a sustained period of time, at least 25 years, to grow at very high rates, above 7% per year. And there was a list uh, of uh, 13 economies that accomplished this. And what the report basically sees in common in all of these economies is, first, they all exploited integration with the global economy. So, Typically, they liberalize, maybe not at the pace and in the format that we would say would be optimal, but they integrated more and more with the global economy. They pursue macro stability. They had a future orientation, meaning that they try to accomplish high levels of savings, domestic savings or tapping into international savings and high levels of investment, and let markets work. So in all of these things, I think that uh, uh, Razin, I guess, would pretty much agree uh, with this broad characterization of economies that have been uh, able in one generation to significantly change their development prospects. There is one thing, however, that comes out of this report, and here we may have more of a debate, is that they had committed and credible and capable governments. We can discuss each one of these words, what it means. 
But one thing that uh, I would say the report is closer, let's say, to the view of Arthur Lewis uh, than the laissez-faire perspective that we have been discussing today. It's more the view that uh, governments can fail either because they do too little or because they do too much. And in this context, we have to look at this experience and then ask, how would this translate in terms of advice and in terms of the future of the world economy, particularly with respect to trade? Now, Razin pointed out that uh, since the heyday of the Washington Consensus, there has been lots of pushback, pushback associated, for, for instance, with the debate about conditionalities imposed by institutions like the bank and the IMF. So when we go to those numbers about unilateral liberalization, uh, and Razin acknowledges this in the book, one of the criticisms is that, uh, well, but uh, maybe it was not that unilateral. But it's true that most of the movement has been done at the level of governments, sometimes with a little help of international organizations, to drive this process towards liberalization. Now, what comes in the end is the discussion of what kind of policies can we expect that in the future we could pursue to further advance a sustainable process of economic integration and further liberalization, particularly in the area of international trade. There is a paper by a friend of ours, Alejandro Jara, former Chilean ambassador to the WTO and currently deputy director general of the WTO, who uh, was entitled The Benefits of Promiscuity. And basically he made the case that and he was looking the experience of Chile that it was important to pursue all these routes, the unilateral route, the preferential trade agreement, and to be very engaged in multilateral negotiations. Now, I share the view of Razin that if we look at preferential trade agreements, most of them are much ado about nothing. And more than that, I fully agree, anybody who wants to have an even the good agreements like NAFTA if you have any problems of insomnia, just go and try to read the rules of origin of NAFTA. And you immediately see the contradiction of uh, having free trade uh, embedded in the names of these agreements. But from a strategic point of view, we fully understand that often governments engage in these games to try to advance and to create points of pressure at the multilateral level. And this is the last point that I would like to make. It's with respect to the future of the WTO. And uh, here, of course, everything that I'm saying, I'm saying on a personal capacity. But uh, one thing that uh, we have to look back in terms of the Doha development agenda, and in 2005, myself and a colleague wrote uh, a paper about... Uh, the Doha Development Agenda, which had something like, uh, in the title, something like mid-flight turbulence or systems failure. And we analyzed the different perspectives. 
in terms of what was happening. Remember, this is immediately before the Hong Kong ministerial. And we said that there were basically three schools of thought. One, the school of thought that Razin characterized very well, the Geneva Center uh, negotiators, that basically believe we have seen all of this before. The Uruguay round took eight, uh, uh, eight years, and uh, yes, Doha is taking long, there are crises, but in the end, we'll come to uh, an agreement. So that's the status quo can deal with the situation. I have always been very skeptical about this view, but it's a view, particularly in, in the village of Geneva, uh, very strong. A second view was a view that uh, would put the blame particularly on the Doha development agenda negotiations, linking the fact that uh, this round was made possible by September 11. That's the reality. The only people who really were pushing for a round were the European Union before uh, the early 2000. The developing countries were very much resistant to a new round. And with September 11, there was a push towards a multilateral solution. We can discuss about the Bush doctrine in this context. But the reality is that there was a moment in which Politically, it was possible to launch the round. But there was never big enthusiasm for the round. Anybody like myself and many in the audience who has been involved during the Uruguay round or going back to the Tokyo round, but particularly in the Uruguay round, in terms of private sector engagement and compare with what was happening during uh, the Doha round negotiations, is night and day the level of interest, and the problems have to do exactly with the problems that Razin pointed out in terms of the difficulties of the agenda, the complexity, the fact that we have now to mix a market access agenda, the GATT agenda, which is much easier, let's say, to, to use a mercantilistic logic to advance through reciprocity liberalization. When we mix this with a regulatory agenda, then we have a much more difficult problem in our hands. So I agree that uh, this perspective and the problems of the Doha round need fresh thinking, particularly because now it's quite obvious that it's going to take a long time if uh, major players are going to come around the table to really agree on the single undertaking uh, emanating from Doha. Should we scrap the round? Well, here I think that the one thing that we have uh, learned in these negotiations is that nobody, no country, not of the, none of the major players, will be willing to declare the round dead. Now, it may go into oblivion if nothing happens, and the political developments in some of the large players make it uh, obvious that nothing is going to happen. But I don't think that we are there yet. But I think that the agenda of having a more focused WTO, focus on market access and simplification of the rules, is a very welcome uh, way to approach the situation. Because I think, typically, we 
overestimate the capacity of the multilateral trade system in delivering liberalization. I fully agree that liberalization has really to be pursued by national governments at the unilateral level and the multilateral system. It's much more a mechanism to avoid recidivism. It's much more a mechanism to bind policies in the right direction. And at the same time, we underestimate the capacity of the WTO to advance areas that are important, like, for instance, trade facilitation. This is an area in which some set of rules could make uh, a much welcome benefit. The same thing with respect to rules of origin, although it's also true that so far uh, ambassadors, negotiators have not been able to advance much this rule. So, where we go from here, I fully agree that globalization from below is, should continue to be more important than from above. I agree that this will not be driven by institutions, be it the WTO, be it the institution that I belong to, but it's important to keep in mind that these institutions, like the WTO, have an important role in terms of uh, providing a forum for the rules of the game, and I fully agree also that leadership from some of the key players, particularly the U.S., is fundamental. In a nutshell, if you were to ask me what is the situation now in terms of prospect for further liberalization, I would just refer back to a story that I once heard from John Major when, uh, in the 1990s, he visited Russia and asked Mr. Yeltsin, at that point in time, the president of Russia, in one word, tell me what is the situation of the Russian economy. And Yeltsin said, good. John Major was struck by the response and asking two words, and Yeltsin said, not good. Thank you. <laughs> Carlos, thank you very much. Uh, we have time for two or three questions. If you could uh, wait for the microphone, I'll uh, raise your hand. I'll acknowledge you. Wait for the microphone. Give us your name and affiliation. And since time is short, if you could get right to the question, uh, and that way more people would have a chance. Any, uh, any questions for our two speakers? Yes, right there. Hi, Charlotte Hibbebrand from IPC. I, you mentioned that climate change might be the Trojan horse of uh, protectionism. Uh, would you make the counter-argument, though, that perhaps free trade could be used to advance uh, environmental sustainability? And would you elaborate on that if you believe that might be the case? Go ahead and just take it. Sure. Uh, the, 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 the answer is yes. Um, uh, there are there are ways to uh, to 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 uh, to prevent the Trojan horse uh, getting into Troy and uh, wreaking wreaking havoc. Um, uh, yes, it's important for the key players. We're not talking about many here. We're, we're talking about the main emitters, and it's probably a group of five plus. Uh, to um, have an intensive discussion. Uh, I, I am uh, not a denialist. Uh, there may be a, a case for precautionary measures that uh, do least economic harm and are not trade restrictive. Uh, 
preferably they would be tax-based rather than quota-based. The problem with that what's on the table at the moment uh, with the imprimatur of distinguished uh, economists such as my, my colleague Nick Stern at the London School of Economics and Ross Garneau in Australia is uh, that they have, uh, I think, gone uh, straight ahead with the advocacy of capping and trading schemes, blithely ignorant of how these are going to work out in political reality. And that includes trade protectionism. Uh, as part of the discussions among this key group, um, and some of those discussions could take place in the WTO, should be discussions on a trade liberalization agenda in the name of energy efficiency. Uh, now, again, I think this is probably going to happen much more from below than from above, uh, but it's the sort of thing that could have a wraparound of sensible multilateral rules. So if we're looking at a WTO agenda post-Doha, which includes something climate change-related or environment-related, uh, then among a club of like-minded members, uh, sensible rules that would... Uh, provide an enabling environment for liberalization of certain products that would result in more energy efficiency would be a good thing. Yes, down in front here. Jean-Pierre Jean -Pierre Chauffour from the World Bank. Thank you for a nice presentation. I'd like to come back to one point that you made about uh, Russia and its accession to the WTO. Uh, you seem to allude to the fact that uh, because of the recent developments, um, Russia accession that has been uh, negotiated for, long, for many years now should be delayed. And I was wondering how does it, um, how does it, um, uh, how is it consistent with the overall liberal spirit that animates your thinking and your book? Uh, should trade be used uh, as an instrument for political sanctions? And if yes, um, would, how do we define the scope of issues that could be taken into account to prevent countries from benefiting from trade if they are willing to obey by the rules of trade? Sure. Um, let me give you the short answer first and then the slightly longer one. The short answer is liberal, yes, but not stupid. Um, the slightly longer answer. Um, yes, if Russia were to act like China and Vietnam and have a domestic reform program underway and want to join the WTO for the benefit of the rules, uh, then yes, uh, the United States, the European Union and others should offer Russia the corresponding carrots uh, with a view to membership of the WTO. The problem is that Russian accession has been working precisely in the opposite direction. Uh, and here, uh, my words chime very much with that of perhaps the leading expert in this town on these issues, and that's Anders Oslund at the Peterson Institute. We have seen a reform reversal in President Putin's second term with the effective nationalization of energy assets, uh, not to mention riding a coach and horses through an incipient rule of law in Russia. We have seen an attitude to the WTO that's about getting into the club because it's Russia's due and then to play foreign policy po politics, kick a foreign policy football around in the club. 
Now, the answer to that, I think, is to be very cautious with Russia getting into the club on the wrong terms and then sending all sorts of wrong signals that, that some others might actually emulate. Uh, now, the bilateral deals have been done, largely. Uh, now it's very much an issue, technically, about making sure Russian rules and regulations conform to multilateral agreements. And that is where the political will uh, has been lacking in Moscow. Now we have, on national security grounds, a pretext to be suitably cautious before allowing Russia into the WTO. I have time for one more. Yes, right over there. Hi. Um, you both talked about how the United States um, can help liberalize um, the WTO and all these trade agreements. Do you think the fact that we owe um, so much money to other countries is going to affect our ability to lead in those kind of liberalization processes at all? Uh, th there, there are several daunting domestic obstacles that stand in the way of U.S. engagement uh, and leadership in the world. That includes the WTO. It includes the broader trade agenda. Uh, uh, there is health care. There is tax. Uh, there is perhaps infrastructure. Uh, there are macroeconomic imbalances, uh, hopefully in the process of being unwound <laughs> Uh, hopefully not, not too disturbingly. Uh, there is financial market volatility. Uh, so uh, all these issues, any one of which could consume uh, the whole term of the next president, could detract uh, from uh, a forward agenda internationally. Uh, the next president uh, is going to have to be, spend a lot of his time on trade policy being defensive, in other words, containing a lot of unpleasant measures coming out of Congress in particular. Uh, those are the obstacles uh, at a time when resources, in other words, money in the federal budget, uh, will be scarcer <laughs> than they've been in the last, uh, in the last two terms. Uh, so, yes, it will take uh, a president and an administration uh, willing to take the initiative and overcome these obstacles to lead internationally, not least on the trade front. That's a very, very big challenge. But to return to one of my basic points, uh, that's indispensable. Uh, it's not the sufficient condition, but it's the necessary condition for uh, bad things not to happen and for good things to happen uh, on the trade front. Well, on that, uh, that call for U.S. leadership, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll end the formal discussion here. I would invite you all to join us upstairs for our complimentary lunch. Dr. Sally will be, uh, be signing books. And please join me in thanking our speakers.